Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter, Hilary Milnes, and with me this week is Nadine McCarthy-Kahani, the founder of Stone & Strand. Thanks for coming in, Nadine. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So we're just talking, so you have Stone & Strand is a direct-to-consumer uh, online company for, for jewelry, half-selling other brands, half-selling your own brand. Uh, but we were literally just discussing um, an offline strategy when when the best that, um, time is for an online brand to go into that. So do you want to start with a little bit of background of where the brand was? You have one showroom in Tribeca, um, and it's been open for about a year. Is that right? Yes, a year and a half. Okay, great. So when you decided to open the, the showroom, what were you looking at in terms of what an offline experience should be and, and why the showroom rather than a retail store? And how's it been going so far? Yeah, so for us, the showroom is really an extension of our office space. We have a tiny living room area and a display of jewelry for people to look at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the initial thinking behind the showroom is we really see ourselves as an omni-channel brand at some point. I think particularly in the jewelry category where an experience um, can really help to build the brand, we definitely see it as part of our long-term vision. So the goal of the showroom was to get an initial taste of what that would be like and to allow customers to come and see products before they make a purchase. And also to give us some level of credibility, because I think particularly with older customers, you know, they do like to know there's a brick and mortar presence and that somehow seems to make you a more legitimate brand in their minds. Um, in terms of our experience so far, you know, we initially started off by really focusing on the showroom and trying to drive traffic from local neighborhood um, events and partners into the showroom. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, we actually found that was less successful than we had hoped because, you know, ultimately what attracts customers to a showroom is wanting to see your product and your brand. And we found that we were much more effective in getting our customers to come in no matter where they were based. Yeah. <laughs> Overseas or, you know, in other parts of the US or even people trekking over from the Bronx to see us and ringing the doorbell mm -hmm. um, without making an appointment versus trying to get lo local customers just based on the fact that they happen to be in the same geography as us. Mm -hmm. So that was really a learning for us in that we we started to recognize that, you know, it really has to be an integrated part of your overall philosophy. You really can't be attracting new customers into the space. It just has to be another way for them to shop. Yeah, that's interesting because I feel like so many uh, online-born brands do open stores, and I'm sure that for a lot of them it's like, oh, well, if people walking by see it, they'll, they'll walk in, and then that's a way to, to get customers in the door. But that wasn't really the case. So I would say that people did walk by and come in, but it was only people that we would have targeted in some way or form. You know, perhaps they had seen a um, Facebook post and came in because they recognized the brand. Mm -hmm. um, so ultimately, you know, we, we just found that um, it was the type of customer we could have targeted through a number of different channels. And it just so happened that in this case, we were able to target them through local signs. Right. I think a big topic of conversation for for brands in your or companies in your sphere is just how expensive it is to acquire customers today. So, in terms of how you how you've been doing that, uh, Stone and Strain has been around for about five years now. Is that right? Five or six? Yeah. What's been most successful? How do you decide where to spend your your dollars there? And and when it comes to an offline experience, 
is it actually adding enough value for the the cost to be worth it? Yeah, and certainly customer acquisition is something I you know think about all the time. <laughs> so I really wish there were a silver bullet answer here. I would say what has been most effective for us has really changed over time. When we first launched, we focused more on the third-party designer strategy. And at the time, it was a great niche because these designers didn't have their own websites. They were not available in other big stores. And so we were the only place to buy their product. And we got a lot of referrals through their websites, press, and organically through Google search. That changed very quickly. Mm -hmm. And we were having a conversation earlier, actually, about how you know, sort of Amazon decides to enter the space, you know, for example, with ShopBop, and that very quickly changed the attractiveness of the third-party industry within jewelry. So they started to go to work with ShopBop as well, which is obviously... They did, yeah. I mean, five years ago when I launched the company, you know, none of these designers, you didn't have any fine jewelry on ShopBop. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in fact, in the jewelry category, people would always say to me, is anyone going to buy anything online? Are people going to copy my designs if I have it online? So it was very much a a changing that completely shifted over five years. Right. Uh, And I think that's, that's interesting. Who are your competitors in the space? And and since you do design your own products, why did you decide to be part marketplace uh, as well as a jewelry seller rather than just start a brand that, that could sell on ShopBop as well? Yeah. And I think the thinking there is if you look at our overall overall philosophy and who we are, we really want to be the destination for the fashion forward woman buying jewelry. And we want to be able to offer her the latest trends. Mm -hmm. We do that both through our own jewelry, but at the same time, we recognize that we can't make everything ourselves, especially given the price points in jewelry are so high when it comes to raw material. We can't really be experimenting with every single trend that we would like to. Right. So for us, being able to partner with designers is a way to bring in a trend that we really like without having to invest in the R&D behind that product ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and where else do your customers shop then and if we're online for jewelry? So I would say that, you know, right now the market is very fragmented, but certainly the big retailers do have a big market share within the space. Mm-hmm. So I would say our customer today either just shops directly at one of the brands or goes to ShopBop, Saks, Neiman Marcus, and Bloomingdale's. Right. But Uh, if I go back to your question of how, you know, our customer acquisition has shifted over time, you know, as we really developed our own in-house label, we've also shifted to a lot more strategies that you're only able to do with your own product. And that was something I actually hadn't really recognized mm -hmm. before we were able to launch our own line. So, for example, we can work more effectively with influencers because we have our own product to send them. Previously, if we send them third-party designer product, the message kind of got lost. Mm-hmm. Plus, we were we were paying a lot of money for the samples that we were giving out. Right. So, when you were, we we talked to a lot of apparel uh, direct to consumer brands, not so many jewelry companies. What's the nuance there in terms of selling jewelry online and as opposed to a, an apparel brand? Is it easier? Is it harder? What have you learned um, over the past five years for for a, a jewelry brand in that space? Because like you said, it's very fragmented. Someone might pick up a pair of earrings on their way out of a department store. But at the same time, we hear that the department stores, you know, they're not, the foot traffic's falling. So that's not a great strategy for the brands anymore. So what, what are the nuances going on there? So I think there's two big differences between jewelry and apparel. I think the first is that you don't need as much working capital for upfront inventory because you can make things very quickly. So for example, you know, we often don't need to have a specific piece of item in stock, but we're able to make it within two weeks after the customer places their order. So unlike apparel where you have to place materials, sample orders, 
you know, months in advance, you really are able to have lower working capital costs when it comes to inventory. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, do you think that the industry has had a similar burst in in sort of competitors that are that are really vying for the same niche area? Uh, what's what's the landscape like or with the brands that you're working with? Yeah, so it's funny. That's my actually my second point about how jewelry is different to apparel. I think the flip side of that benefit is that because working capital costs are so low, it's super competitive. You know, you really don't need a lot of money to set up a jewelry line and you can make products really easily and you can copy people really easily as well. You know, everyone has access to the same material. So for example, if I were to copy a a, a t-shirt from H&M, I would need to source the fabric. Mm-hmm. Whereas in jewelry, that's not a problem. If you see a ring, you can always get exactly the same components and make it very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, tell us a little bit more about the supply chain that's in work there. I feel like everyone, all eyes are on the supply chain in apparel more so than they ever been in the past. What's the production process like for your own uh, brands? And and do you think that it has it's going through the same modes of let's cut out the middleman, let's make this more efficient? Uh, what's going on there? There's definitely a lot of movement within jewelry, and I think that. You know, one of the interesting things is the direct-to-consumer model isn't a new one. You know, it was one that Zara pioneered <laughs> years ago, and that's how they were able to offer lower prices. I think within jewelry, you know, if you look at retailers such as Zales and Signet, they're essentially direct-to-consumer brands as well. They don't do third-party retail, and their margins are margins that they're only able to supply by going direct to their customer. Mm-hmm. So in terms of supply chain, you know, I would say it's not knowing much about apparel within jewelry, it's hugely fragmented again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are many different ways of obtaining product. You can buy it by finished designs from wholesalers, but market under your own label. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can design products yourself and get them made at one place, or you could design, you know, a product and get it made in 10 different places where each different place is a specialty guy on 47th Street that will do one step of the process. Right. Do you think that the customers are having a similar reaction to um, the jewelry side of, of sustainable consumption that we're seeing in the fashion side? Do, uh, your customers, they care more about where things are made, how the materials were sourced, and then that type of uh, concerns that we're seeing in other categories? Definitely. And I would say that jewelry perhaps even led the field with respect to that because concern over where materials came from certainly started a while ago with an expose over blood diamonds. Mm -hmm. And so the industry has done a lot of work in cleaning up um, the source of diamonds globally. And I think that has changed things fairly significantly. I would also say that the shift from costume jewelry towards fine jewelry in my mind also reflects a millennial customer wanting something that is more sustainable because our pieces do last, you know, unlike a piece of costume jewelry that you'll throw away after wearing it twice or three times, you know, you can always get something altered or fixed with fine jewelry. So it really is a piece that's a little bit more considered and something that's designed to be a more substantial purchase. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the the work with influencers and we've actually spoken to someone who said that uh, for jewelry brands, it's like the one category that's almost at a disadvantage on, on social media. There's there's less of a way to convey this broader story about, about a jewelry brand. So how have you approached that space specifically on social media and working with influencers? What's worked well for you guys? Um, yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And in fact, it's the same with press because, for example, if you lend a pair of earrings to a celebrity, chances are People Magazine will focus on that amazing dress she's wearing mm-hmm. and the earrings will almost be an afterthought, especially when you're dealing with everyday pieces like we do. 
So with respect to our influencer strategy, we actually designed a specific line just for influencers. And it's a line that's really motivated by our values and the message that we want to communicate to our customers. We're a very feminist company with an organization that's completely led by women. So for us, it was more of a passion project. And we designed a line that we thought would resonate with influencers. Um, but at the same time, with respect to the practical side of actually being visible on the Instagram, it's more substantial piece. So it's not made in solid, from solid gold like the rest of our collection. It's made from vermeil, so we can actually gift it. Um, so it was actually something that we had to design a completely new line for. Oh, that's interesting. Can you? Yeah. So did it look different though? You mentioned it wanted to really say something about the brand. Um, how did how did the design process differ from a regular collection if it was more meant to be very influencer focused? Yeah. So for us, we actually um, designed the whole thing by first of all being inspired by two women whose work we loved. They were two photographers based out of LA whom we just thought had you know, a great attitude, great approach to life. They were so honest, so fun to work with and so authentic. So we started with a photo series where they photographed each other in a natural environment throughout the day and really talked about their fears and their concerns and who they were as individuals, both personally as well as in their careers. And then from that came up with this idea of, you know, sort of a woman's toolkit. These are supposed to be really fun charms that allow you to celebrate the small milestones in life. And what we were really trying to do with the collection was to tie that into this idea of confidence because we felt that confidence is about celebrating the small wins. And often as women, we can be a little bit too hot on ourselves if the small things don't go our way. Mm -hmm. And so these charms were supposed to be irreverent and designed to celebrate, you know, things that are everyday moments or, you know, good or bad, perhaps getting over a breakup or, you know, helping a friend find a new job and just special things that mark who you are throughout your lifetime. Is that an ongoing partnership with the influencers then or was it like a one-time campaign? It was a way to kick off the campaign, but we certainly are working with different people and different aspects of this campaign going forward. Mm -hmm. And how is that collection done in terms of people reacting to it and, and sales? So it's, it had a great reception. And, you know, I think one of the things we were looking for was just that connection to our customer. And that's really how we measured success for the collection you know we weren't necessarily looking at sales metrics which I can tell you about <laughs> but we were just looking more for emails from our customers saying yes I'm so glad you guys are doing that or for example when we hire candidates and talk to them during interviews it's something that they mention and something that really appeals to them about the company and the work that we do mm -hmm. so that was really the goal um, in terms of overall sales because these price points are significantly lower than our regular pieces mm -hmm. um, it's not something that has done so well from us from for, for a sales from a sales perspective um, but like I said that wasn't sort of the initial goal behind the collection right because it's a smaller piece of the overall business I'm sure um, and and tell me about uh, the relationship that you guys have with the brands that you do sell on the platform. You mentioned um, when when ShopUp came along, was owned by Amazon, that was a major player that these brands might have wanted to flock to. So I want to talk about both the, the how that changed the consumer expectation side, but how did that change how you work with the brands? Did it kind of say like, oh, I can offer you something that, that ShopUp can about a much closer relationship, that type of thing? How did that change the relationship with the brands that you have? Yeah, and I would say it really is something you have to look at on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. I think one of our biggest concerns about ShopBop entering the space was not only did they change, obviously, the price to acquire a customer because they don't necessarily think about a ROAS and their marketing spend in the same way that we do. Um, they're obviously much more aggressive. 
But I'll say the second component is their promotional cycle is extremely aggressive. Right. And but I'm sure was, I do, I'm, the brands don't really like that. Yeah, it's a question of to what extent they want to accommodate it. So mm-hmm. I would say within our portfolio of designers and within the jewelry world in general, you definitely have a bifurcation of people who are willing to go all the way and discount however much ShopBop wants them to you and people who never discount and decide to completely remove themselves from the game. Right. And so then on the on the flip side, how do you position Stone and Strand then? Is it almost like, almost like an antithesis to that? Like we won't promote as much as a shop op will. Uh, you have more integrity as a brand selling on our site. Uh, we value the customer relationship a lot more than just promotions. What's that conversation been like? And, and has it evolved over the past five years? Like is the same thing that's important now, the same thing that was as important five years ago? Yeah, I would say because we're so focused on a specific customer and it's a very fashion-forward customer, our buy tends to be different to some of these other more mainstream stores. So there isn't necessarily complete overlap, and that's Mm -hmm. what we are able to offer our customers. I think what has changed is, you know, we used to have more of a typical marketplace model with customers, you know, with our expectation that customers would be willing to wait for items, but more and more we're shifting towards more immediate delivery, particularly for these third-party designers where you do have the choice to buy it, you know, with one click and for it to arrive the next day via Amazon Prime. Right. Yeah. And obviously those are customer expectations really set by Amazon. Uh, as, a, as a smaller company, how do you pull that off? I think that's that's top of mind for any online brand that that has found itself in the same realm as Amazon, but at a fraction of the size. Yeah, and I think for us, it's just been about fine-tuning our niche more and more and just really, really focusing on that and focusing on that customer. I think one of the things we are really able to do very effectively because we just focus on fashionable jewelry is show people how to wear it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things we're doing with our offline strategy is also to focus on piercings, which is such a big part of the on-trend sort of ear look right now. Mm -hmm. And so for us, competing against Amazon means being even more focused than they are. And also stepping, you know, dipping our toe into more experiential events where, you know, there really is a way for us to meet the customers face to face and, you know, give them an experience and help them get their piercing and show them how to style their ear look in a way that you just couldn't do if you were looking at, you know, a flat screen on ShopBop. Mm -hmm. And I think the advantage you also have as a smaller business is you can really make it feel very personalized. So we also worked on our product images to make them feel much more personalized, much more special. We do many more on-body images. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also a way a customer can come to us and know that this is something that, you know, is really a hand-picked experience and something that a mass market retailer can't compete with at any level. Right. And that, do you think that level of personalization and and customer service and experience, like you can go to the showroom and and, uh, get that service done or talk to a stylist, is there a customer out there who values that over something like next day shipping? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are different customer segments. Um, You know, I would say ultimately from my experience, it comes down to the product above all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the way in which we see ourselves as being able to compete at the end of the day with these big players is to produce our own product at a better price point with, you know, a better design that our customers would prefer to buy. Right. And so what have you learned about the customer in terms of the product that you can then create that that will specifically appeal to what they're looking for? Have you been gathering that data? Obviously, we look at a company like Stitch Fix that uses the white space in their own inventory, very driven by data and algorithms to design pieces that they're not getting from brands. Um, How are you guys using customer data in order to figure out what your own line can look like? Because that's 
pretty valuable information that you're getting from your brand partners. Definitely. And we do do a lot of market research, both offline as well as, um, you know, within our our web platform itself. So we do look a lot at Google Trends. We look at trend reports. We do our own trend analyses. um, And we use that as well as our previous sales data to inform what we should produce going forward. I think one of the beautiful things about the stitch fix model, which I've been obsessing over, is the fact that they really help women solve body issue problems by, you know, suggesting items specifically to address body issue problems as opposed to trends. Mm-hmm. You're thinking so much about how to replicate that with jewelry, but I haven't come up with a solution yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, other than being the being like an add-on for whenever stitch fix is, is targeting. <laughs> uh, but so going whenever you're we are designing the the items and you're reacting to customers' trends and, and um, anal- analytics there, how fast are you able to... Uh, you know, produce a new collection or line and and get it out the door to the customer. Yeah. And that's definitely one of the things that we are able to offer as a smaller company. So essentially, if we wanted to, we could get something out within two weeks. Sometimes it does take slightly longer because you might not have a photo shoot scheduled Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, other operational components. But, you know, generally we tend to get new designs out within a month. And we also don't think in terms of collections. So for us, there's a drop, you know, practically every week Mm. and there's new items added to the website. So it's much more of, I would say, a um, less seasonal approach and a much more um, sort of regular drop and uh, adoption of trends. Mm -hmm. And and that's a a model that we're seeing being adopted across the board in in fashion and uh, apparel. So in terms of getting that customer come back, I'm sure that newness and that ability to respond really quickly, is that a big driver of business for you guys? Yes, definitely. I think newness is really important. I think particularly in the jewelry category where the traditional turn is one time a year. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine walking into a more traditional jewelry store and you know either the product inventory section has not changed or sometimes, you know, you'll walk in and it has changed, but because they don't change the displays and they're just not as innovative as they are in fashion, to me, it just feels like a really, really stale experience. Mm-hmm. And what are what are your price points like? Because I think, a, you know, naturally when you think about a, a faster uh, response to a trend and then a frequent product drops, you're not doing costume jewelry. It's not, it's not super cheap, but you have to imagine that if it can't be can it or can it be a very you know high intention purse uh, purchase that's that's a little bit on the steeper side? We do focus on price points, so most of our own collection tends to be below five hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. That's still a pretty decent sized purchase, though. So how you know do you have a lot of repeat customers? Like how often are they visiting and making purchases? Um, that type of thing, especially when you have the cadence of almost like a fast fashion brand. Yeah, definitely, and I would say you know the approach of us being able to adopt trends quickly um, is one that's similar to fast fashion, but certainly customers are not buying as many pieces as they would be ordering from Zara. Right. (laughs) Um, And we also don't produce in that quantities. That's the beauty of jewelry. You can just produce limited edition of three pieces and when they sell, um, you know, that's it. We move on to something else. Mm -hmm. So in terms of our, our repeat rate, you know, we see customers, it really obviously depends on their budget and the share of wallet that they are devoting to jewelry. Mm-hmm. But on average, it would be around two pieces a year. Mm-hmm. All right. That's not bad. <laughs> uh, what about the technology that has really emerged in this area? You know, in terms of design, 3D modeling, what's become really important for you guys, especially uh, as a company that has to decide 
where to prioritize a little bit more strategically than than a company like Shopbop that can really throw everything at the wall. Um, what what technology in this space has gotten really you really excited? So in terms of new technology, I would say, you know, that's something we have not been utilizing or we haven't really seen shift the business. It's amazing when you look at jewelry, how much things have operated in the same way for the last (laughs) hundreds of years. I mean, certainly we do use 3D printing. Everyone does. And I would say the one thing that is exciting is the use of lasers in both soldering the pieces as well as engraving because it means you can make delicate work that is designed to last Mm -hmm. but it's not really consumer facing no um and we've definitely explored a lot of different things and i love the idea of you know being able to visualize jewelry before you try you know before you get it at home to try on and i think there are a lot of very exciting technologies that could change the field at some point but from my perspective they're just not there yet Mm -hmm. and they tend to add more friction rather than smoothening the process with a customer right now. Right, which is obviously a big problem with the tech onboarding. Uh, but as you go forward, especially as, you know, if you do look for um, to expand on the in-store model or the showroom model, do you find that the the biggest opportunity is to sell your own brands there? Or is it more about the brands that you've curated and brought together and, and aggregated? I think that that edit has become especially important right now in the marketplace setting. Uh, with department stores, online online e-commerce stores across the board? We really see the mix as being very beneficial in jewelry because I would say that having third-party designers on board will enable us to really integrate ourselves into local communities as we expand the business. Mm-hmm. So it's a really great way, for example, if we did a pop-up in a town to host three designers who you know, are currently making jewelry from that town and for us to immediately become part of the community. Mm-hmm. And it, how does the customer, do you think, prefer to shop? You, obviously, you mentioned that the in-store experience isn't dead, but how do you sort of balance those two together? And, and, and what about the showroom experience, too? How does that fit in? So I think if you look at online penetration of jewelry compared to other categories, it still is fairly low in jewelry. It's certainly less than around 15%, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously very different to the 45 50% that you see in apparel and other categories. So there definitely is a customer who is willing to shop online. There's also a customer that perhaps wants to see something in store and familiarize with herself as a brand and then will be willing to repeat online. And then obviously you have the customer who's never willing to shop online at all because they think it's jewelry and they want to see it in person. Mm -hmm. So we just see them as three different segments that you have to target in a phased approach. Obviously, we started off with the online only customer, but we are experimenting with the customer who would want to see it in person, but then would be happy to repeat online. And I would say for now, those are our two core segments. Mm-hmm. Um, great. And, 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 you know, we're almost out of time, but, but to wrap up, do you think that in a space like this, you're looking at online competitors that are also working with brands, but wh- how do you value customer service? Uh, we, we talked about personalization, but in terms of that high touch feel for the customer, we're talking about, you know, price points that are in $500 range. Where does that come into play and and how are you planning on expanding that as you scale the business? I think that high touch customer experience is really, it can be hard to scale the more you grow. Yeah, and just to clarify one point, um, you know, the maximum sort of cap on our our private label is 500, but the average price point is much lower. So the average average purchase is between, you know, 120 to $250. Mm -hmm. So it's more comparable to, you know, perhaps a, um, a pair of shoes or, 
or a skirt that you might buy from Net-a-Porter. Mm-hmm. But how do you uh, scale that, that, that customer service? Yeah, I think that's a really good question um, and one that we certainly thought about as well. I think one of the things that we've done over the past few months is to really look at what services our customers value and also which customers we should be spending time and money on. I think one of the trade-offs we're having to make is, you know, for example, we decided to charge for returns because we realized that while we were when we offered free returns, we were disproportionately subsidizing a small group of customers that would buy a lot of products and return it without ever purchasing anything. Mm-hmm. And that meant that our good customers were essentially having to pay for the bad habits of a small group of our bad customers. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really hard decision for us, but something that we decided to do because we felt like ultimately our price point's the most important thing. And we would rather channel as much savings as possible into lowering the price points of our products and to allow customers to make the decision on the back end and to be responsible about whether or not they are going to return an item and therefore be willing to pay for it if they are. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Any other decisions like that? Because I feel like these things like free return and shipping and shipping times uh, are really table stakes for an online retailer. Uh, But how else did you sort of make decisions that way? Yeah. And there were some, you know, and like I said, in terms of decisions, it was really both talking to talking to existing customers to understand what they value and what they're willing to pay for versus what they're not willing to pay for. And I think, um, you know, that analysis as well as analysis of, you know, for example, which which customer service offerings would equally be of value, like I said, to all customers versus just a subset of customers who are expecting that as a freebie mm-hmm. um, was something that we really looked at. So something else we had to change was we did offer free international shipping but that's clearly one where, you know, once again, when people were not paying for shipping, it was something that we were having to cover the cost for, for a group of international customers. Mm-hmm. And our American customers were having to pay for that. So we really decided to adopt an approach of, you know, just trying to focus on one or two things that we are really proud to offer, like our 100-day return policy and our free shipping, and to really make that the core tenets of the brand and to make those things also things that we believe the majority of our customers value. Mm-hmm. The hard the hard decisions of e-commerce sounds like. Definitely. And, you know, especially as an owner of a brand, you always want to please everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and in the early days, we definitely did that. You know, we were happy to send anything anywhere, even though we lost money on it. And you very quickly learn that's not a good way to run a business. Right. <laughs> even as you grow. Um, well, great. Well, thanks so much, Nadine, uh, for coming in. Learned a lot. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was great to be here. Great. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play and leave us any feedback you have.